we're going to be in Second um, Timothy chapter four. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to Second Timothy chapter four. The folks will be walking down the aisle. They'll give you one. Last time I made them stand there forever while I went through my long introduction. I just about killed them, so I'm going to just do it right now. They're holding these books. Second Timothy is the last letter the Apostle Paul wrote before he was beheaded in Rome. And these, this is the final chapter of the final letter. These were the final words recorded uh, of the Apostle Paul. We're going to take a look at them this morning. Before we do that, uh, I was going to say, <clears throat> um, where's Rick? Is it a go? Okay. Yeah. So the prayer meeting starts at 5.30? Okay, so the prayer meeting's at 5.30 tonight. We're going to pray for the election. Also, Monday, we're gathering. If, if uh, you want to come and you're not familiar with corporate prayer, praying in a group, it's okay. You know, you can be like Mary. She pondered these things in her heart. You don't have to pray out loud. No one's like, hey, why didn't you pray? You know, it's, they're not going to get on you about it. But it's just to be in agreement with the people who are with you. But in addition... Um, Rick went back and checked with the staff. We had a great suggestion that um, we can't fill it out for you, nor will, would we. But if you, you, you open it up and you've never voted and you've got your ballot and you're like, ooh, we, we can help, help you navigate and answer questions you might have in relation to it. Um, so if you want to bring those tonight and then uh, if, if, if you sign it and, and agree that we, like we've been doing, we turned in 300 ballots, you can uh, leave the ballot here and we'll take it in. So if you need help, Come tonight uh, at 5.30 and we'll help you. We'll have a table set up with some folks and go from there. All right? Yeah, all right. Some of you are like, okay, all right, that's good. <laughs> so um, as we've been going through the Anchored Reading Series, I, I covered uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. I was actually going to do another Old Testament teaching, but it's been a, a fascinating week and the, and the Lord speaks to me through the anchored reading, and I pray he does the same for you. Um, by the way, did you know that less than 3% of Americans read their Bible daily? It's, it's just dropped precipitously um, since the founding of our nation. All, all of our founders were very biblically proficient. They, they, they actually understood Greek and Hebrew. They studied Latin as well. Uh, kids raised in America were... First taught with a New England primer up until the 1930s, which was all scripture. Uh, second graders would memorize the entirety of the book of John. Yeah, we're like, well, I don't think I've even memorized John 3.16. <laughs> the, the word had a, an enormous, God's word had an enormous influence in our culture. Uh, there's idioms um, that, that um, saturate our language, the English language. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary credits the Wycliffe Bible, a 14th century Middle English translation of the Bible, with more early citations of English words than the works of Dickens, Jane Austen, Thomas Hardy, Samuel Pepys, John Milton combined. The Bible even outrank, outranks William Shakespeare with evidence of a grand total of 1,547 new words compared to Shakespeare's 1,524 words. 
It doesn't stop there. The numerous English translations and editions of the Bible produced over the centuries have likewise given us countless proverbs and sayings uh, and expressions, many of which have been dropped into everyday use. A lot of us use them day in and day out, uh, like, O ye of little faith. Um, and the biblical origins of many of these are interesting, to say the least. Um, I'll give you, in this message, 18 of these idioms, these phrases that we use in our language that come directly from the scriptures themselves. And the reason why I say that is because in the passage we're about to read, uh, the Apostle Paul knows that he is going, he's, he's facing uh, death. He knows he's going to be decapitated. They couldn't crucify him, and it was purported that he was, he was martyred or killed the same day that Peter and Peter's wife were killed. Peter and his wife were crucified upside down in 64 AD when the fires swept through Rome that Nero himself apparently had lit and then blamed the Christians in this massive persecution erupted where... Peter and his wife were crucified upside down, and uh, Paul uh, was beheaded. The reason why Paul was beheaded is because Paul was a Roman citizen. He understood his citizenship. He was well-versed in being a Roman citizen, and he was a good Roman citizen, and you can't crucify uh, a Roman, and uh, so they couldn't crucify him, so they beheaded him. And here he knows he's, he's facing that. It's, it's imminent. It's any moment, and he's writing a letter uh, to one of his young students who is a minister by the name of Timothy. And, and Paul is penning his final words and leaving and entrusting to Timothy that which he had endeavored to, to begin, he left for Timothy to finish. Just so you know who Paul is, who's the author of this letter that we're going to stand momentarily to read Paul was a Jew. He wasn't just a Jew, he was a Levite. He wasn't just a Levite, he was a Pharisee and a Sadducee. Uh, no, excuse me, Sanhedrin. He was a Sanhedrin and a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. How's it go? Um, Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, that's why they're sad, you see. Uh, so. <laughs> Paul was a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin, which required that he be married, which is the likelihood his wife left him, as he would speak in 1 Corinthians 7 about abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse. He said, if they want to live with you, stay with them. Um, but he had given everything, and he was under uh, Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, depends on how you pronounce it, um, Gamaliel, and, and he was the chief rabbi, um, a lot like Nicodemus. And Paul was scheduled to be the next chief rabbi, which was a position that held great wealth and notoriety. <clears throat> it was uh, believed that he spoke probably seven languages. He had what would be the equivalent of multiple degrees today, including doctorates, masters. He was brilliant, wealthy, and had it all going for him. Uh, and he was persecuting Christians. And on the road to Damascus to go hunt down some Christians, he was struck by a light that blinded him. It was the Lord. And uh, God began to transform Paul. It's called a Pauline experience. Some of you have come to a relationship with Jesus Christ because others have shared with you. Um, and they've told you about the Lord. And, and you, you, you've, you've understood it. And, and you together prayed. For Paul, uh, there was no one there to explain it. It was, it was God himself who just grasped him. A lot, a lot of things happened in the 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where 
95% of the Muslim world exists, and most of them are reached by dreams. No one's out there telling them anything, and they, they come to Christ through these visions, similar to the Pauline experience. So Paul, Paul comes to the Lord, and then uh, he's taken away, and he gets what is called a BSD degree. It's my favorite. I, I, I do have a BSD degree. I think I have a master's, actually. It's, a BSD is a master's. Uh, uh, it's a degree backside of the desert, BSD, backside of the desert. <clears throat> to where God just takes you out there and reduces you to a minimum that he might pour in his maximum. Uh, you come to God going, hey, look what you got. This is a catch. And God goes, no, I got to get rid of all that and start over. You're just a... God's my co-pilot. I mean, that was the dumbest title of a book I've ever heard. It's like, get out of the way and let him fly the stupid plane. He's God, you idiot. I remember seeing that when I was young going, why would you have him as your co-pilot? Let him fly the thing. So, um, so Paul uh, went, went to the backside of the desert and there uh, he, he, he was learned. And when he came back, no one believed that he was a Christian. No one believed that he believed that Christ was his Messiah, that he was a Messianic Jew. And the Christians were scared of him because he was killing them prior. He was hunting them and killing them and attesting to their death. It'd be like having an Antifa person, you know, all of a sudden they're going to be the next apostle. You're like, what, what, you know, how they were out burning buildings and now they're going to be professing Christ and throughout the world. Um, so when, when Judas betrayed the Lord and they had to replace his apostolic position, they drew straws, which isn't what God asked him to do. God already had the 12th apostle picked and it was Paul and, and Paul was never recognized fully as an apostle, and it really, it really affected him. He, he would write about it in many of his letters. He, he, he isn't the most prolific writer in the New Testament. That's, that's Luke, his physician. Uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he also wrote the book of Luke. So page-wise, Luke has a lot more writing, but epistles that we have, letters written, uh, especially pastoral epistles, it's Paul. And... And Christianity reached Europe as a result of this man's efforts. So he is, he's remarkable. Now, in the course of his life, uh, he was whipped on three separate occasions 40 times on each whipping. And not just whipped 40 times, like with a wet noodle. Dad, naughty you. Now, this was Roman, this is cat of nine tails, eight flat leather, excuse me, nine flat leather straps. On the end were pieces of, of sharp metal or glass that would be dipped in water, smacked on the back so it could get a good hold, and then rip the flesh out and 40 times. And he, went, he endured that three separate occasions, 120 brutal lashes. He was, he was stoned. And I'm not talking the drug. I'm talking about his hands were tied behind his back, his feet to a pole, his head was tied to the pole. And they would run up with stones and throw it right at your face. And he was, he was literally left for dead. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a viper and shook it off into a fire on the island of what Cyprus or Malta. I can't remember where. This man never had a luxurious life when he came to Christ. He went from the lap of luxury and notoriety to being a prisoner everywhere he went, and a soccer ball to be kicked through the streets. And he was small, tiny little guy. And it was likely that he was blind by the end of his life because of the beatings he had endured. But he was um, unstoppable. 
The more you beat him, the stronger he became. That's where we get the term anti-fragile. I've watched that here at God speak. All of you guys are getting run through the mill and ridiculed. And you go, oh, you go to that chair. And uh, you're like, yes, I do. It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, so this man, what would he have to say at the end of his life? And, um, and bef- I'm almost finished. That's why I had them standing so horribly last time. I'm almost finished. I, I want to share this with you. It, it touched me this week because uh, my travels took me to uh, Phoenix and Indianapolis uh, and outskirts of Noblesville, Indiana, and another one out by the, almost near Chicago, actually, um, speaking. I remember two women drove great distance from Kentucky. It was like a three and a half hour drive. They're like, we watch God speak every Sunday. We love you guys. And they just, I want you to know that you're really appreciated. Yeah. And, and these churches are thrilled by what you all have done. And, um, but, but the, the exciting part is I, I, I went from Phoenix uh, to Camarillo and jumped over to Santa Monica to go to the Jonathan Club, which is uh, a really swanky club on the beach there in Santa Monica. Just because I'm special. And I, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I've never been to any club in Santa Monica on the beach. I was a guest of somebody who had the money to be able to go to a place like that. And they really wanted me to come, and I did. And when I got there, there were, these two men were hosting it. And the rest of us, uh, there, there were pastors there. And, and, and uh, the, some of the pastors, actually, I, I, I'm thinking specifically of two of them, younger guys, far more educated than I am. I think one has a doctorate, the other has a master's. I just have that BSD thing I was telling you about. <laughs> I do have a bachelor's, though, of history from the Harvard of the San Joaquin Valley, Fresno State. So it's smart, super smart. So where was I? These, these two guys, young and well-educated, um, were my nemesis during the lockdowns because these guys were posting black tiles, and I think one or both, or I can't remember, marched in the BLM marches. Um, Encourage their congregation to read pro-critical race theory books, to examine their whiteness, um, and, and their quote-unquote evangelical ministers uh, who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ. And and I was I was un, I was very critical at certain stages of the misery we endeavored and endured endeavored endured, and I. I was on that live stream. It was Liberty Station. Before that, was Vintage McCoy, and then it was just the fireside chat, and it just became a blur. But I remember there were some evenings where I was just tired of it. And guys like that, I, would, I was just dumping on. And, um, and I'm sitting with them, and I'm, I'm realizing I really like these guys. And they, they both said, you know, we're, we're here because we want to do it different if it happens again. We, we, we were wrong. And I, you know, I, I was blessed by the two men that put on businessmen that just wanted to reconcile the church and endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. As I looked at that, it's, it's funny because when you start into a conflict and you look to your left and your right, you're surprised that the people you thought would stand with you didn't. 
And then you look to your left and your right and you're surprised by the people who are standing with you. You're like, I, I didn't even know we were friends, <laughs> right? And, and, um, and as I'm, I'm traveling, I'm starting to watch that, I call it the island of misfit toys, but he's assembling people that are not moved by glory and gold. But in the midst of it, I'm watching people who I love start to battle with one another. Currently, two of my very, very dear friends, I can't go into detail, but two of my very dear friends are enmeshed in a lawsuit right now, which is just sickening to me. And I love them both, and I'm just burdened by it. And, and I got such comfort out of Paul's writing to Timothy. It ministered to me. I almost felt like I was Timothy. And I'm like, thanks, old man. You know, it just, it blessed me. And I pray it does the same for you. The final words before he's beheaded. And may they minister to you and give you strength and, and endurance and encouragement for the road ahead. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Second Timothy chapter four, I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. <clears throat> the apostle Paul writing to his, his student Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word! Exclamation point. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. That means proclaim the gospel. Fulfill your ministry. <clears throat> which means finish what you started. And then Paul uses a term, an idiom. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering because they would, Romans would dedicate to, you know, Zeus or they pour something. This is for the gods, you know, while they're having dinner. It's just an offering. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Be diligent to come to me quickly. And this is what I want to focus on this afternoon. Be diligent to come to me quickly. He's, he's imploring him. He's begging him. Please, I need you. I need somebody here. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And the books. And please repeat after me these next three words. It's the, especially the parchments. We'll say it together. One, two, three. Especially the parchments. The parchments were rolled up vellum of Old Testament books. Paul had already memorized the Pentateuch. He'd already memorized probably all of them. But he still wanted the parchments. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. 
May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he finishes by talking to some people that are precious. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Paul had the ability that even something that he'd sweat on would touch somebody and they'd be healed. The guy would pray for people, they'd be healed. Uh, one guy fell out of a window dead. He brought him back to life. But there are some that God doesn't choose to heal, Miletus being one of them. Almost finished, and then you can sit down. I know you look exhausted. <laughs> Paul says, do your utmost to come to me before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And grace be with you, Timothy. Amen. His last word, amen, means true. His whole life was committed to that truth. His word would become a canon of scripture of the 66 books of the Bible. His would be considered written by the spirit of the Lord himself using the instrument of Paul's hand. Profound. Lord, I ask your blessing on the study of your word, which is true. And Lord, we ask you to lead us into all truth. I pray that you would encourage and bless all who are present in the hearing of my voice that through the life of this man and his final words, they too would resonate for them as it did for Timothy, that we would all find encouragement and strength in these trying times and never grow weary in well-doing. We all have those seasons where we find ourselves as a Demas, where we forsake the ones we love but you are a God of mercy and grace. And I pray that you would speak to each and every heart, wherever they are, that it's not over. It's time to forget what's behind and strive for what is ahead. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He'll forgive you. And all you have to do is get up, dust yourself off, and get back in the fight. And so, Lord, please, speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, if you would. The portion I want to really focus on in this passage is where Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly for Demas, and I, I underline that, for Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Luke's the physician. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you. And I underline get Mark. I'll explain momentarily. For he's useful to me for ministry. And then at the end, I had you repeat those three words, especially the parchments. This is the focus for today. Demas. Demas was not always a bad guy. Paul wrote of Demas in Philemon, and you could have read it this week if you had done the Anchored Reading series. It was part of it. In Philemon, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, 
Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and he gives them a title, my fellow laborers. You know, I, I love that people come to church. But if you have a job to do and you go, hey, folks, can you all stick around? We got a prayer meeting or you need somebody to help move tables. And it, you know, it's like quickest way to preach a church down to a manageable size is call for a prayer meeting. A lot of you aren't laughing. And I, that's a, it's because you're like, ooh, that just, that hurt. Because I don't do that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm pointing out that Demas was one of those guys. That's all I'm saying. Demas was one of those guys. When Paul turned to his right to get something done, he's looking and Demas is working. And it's folks like that that your heart gets endeared to. Every time I come to the church, there's certain people. I'm like, do you ever leave this place? They're like, no, this is awesome. I just love what I'm doing. There's so many great things. I can't believe I get to serve the Lord and I've been given the opportunity and they're just a smile and you're like, you're not right in some, I, wow. There's, there's some on staff that have taken that whole level of servant and moved the bar to where it's like, that is, if you open up in the dictionary under servant, there's a picture of them, like, you know. And you'll never get a picture of them angry because they're just, there's joy. And it's just, you know, it's just, that was Demas, my fellow laborer. Laborer means you're in the trenches, you're digging the holes, you are working hard. And I guess, you know, that's one of those things that really affected Paul. He would go on to a later epistle to the church at Colossae, and he would just, he wouldn't call him a fellow laborer. He'd just say, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greets you. He didn't add the fellow laborer. He lost his title. Paul's already starting to see this guy fade a little bit. Demas started really well. His previous faithfulness made it all the more painful for Paul. Demas started well, but he finished poorly. Those are the ones that hurt the most. You know, folks that you, you get in the thick of it and you, you've gone to battle with them and they've been faithful and you, just, you, you think you're, they're unstoppable. And then they just walk away and they give up. They get discouraged and they quit. We all know someone like that. We might even be in a place where we're like that in, in some capacity. I mean... It hurts a little bit. But the good news is we don't know how it all ended for Demas. We have church tradition. But it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. And, and he could have finished well. And our life is a series of ups and downs. And the only good thing in us is Jesus. The rest, I'll take credit for all the misery. So... If you are currently a Demas and you're getting ready to walk out, don't. God's not finished with you yet. You're tired, I get it. I, I get tired too. You're discouraged, I get that too. Discouraged just means you don't have any courage. Well, find some. Dig deeper. Look for sources of inspiration. Your faith is waning and I'll tell you why. You're not reading your Bible. The um, Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And you're not reading. The Bible says that the word of God is our, our food. I mean, we don't miss breakfast, lunch, or dinner or the snacks in between. But imagine if, if 
the way we consume God's word spiritually equated to how we eat physically. We'd be all emaciated. Like, <laughs> Read your Bible. Paul emphasized that. Bring the parchments. This is what caused Demas to derail. You start listening to the wrong voices. You know, I've told you this before, and, and you guys know it, that that we could, I could be in a crowded room with my wife of 32 years, Michelle, and she could be opening up a gift, and, I, and, and I, I can tell by the movement of her eye, and none of you would have a clue whether she likes a gift or hates it. Because her language becomes familiar to me. Because I love her. That's why, that's why a language reflects the love of the person that it speaks of or that it seeks. There's, there's, there's very few words, let me correct that, there's, there's, there's words that, only, that I use that only apply to Michelle, and I'll never use for you. She is, she is the love of my life. I can't even look at it right now because I'm going to start getting choked up. <laughs> when I read to you about the Wycliffe Bible being so inspirational, to the English language, it's because the people fell in love with the Lord and their language reflected that. You ever heard at the 11th hour? You ever heard that idiom? It's the 11th hour. It means it's like we're running out of time. That's right from the Bible. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, the parable of the laborers in the gospel of Matthew. Your reward will always be the same, even at the 11th hour. Are you at your wit's end? That's another idiom that comes from the scriptures. The phrase comes from Psalm 107. They that go down to the sea in ships, namely sailors and seafarers, are described as being thrown around by a storm at sea so that they reel to and fro and stagger like, drunk, like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. It becomes part of our language because... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt with man. I love the Lord. He is the Word. He is the Alpha and the Omega, which in the Greek alphabet is the A and the Z. He is the alphabet of God. Everything the Father has ever wanted to say to man, he said through his Son, en uio, in Son. When you go to Russia, you speak in Russian. If you go to Japan, you speak in Japanese. You want to speak in God's kingdom, you speak in son, his son, his word. His word is true. And so when we love him, it reflects in our language. The blind leading the blind. Matthew 15. By the skin of your teeth. Anyone harbor a guess at that one? It's out of the book of Job, 1920. To cast your pearls before swine. Which means, you know, people who won't appreciate something that you're presenting it to them, they're just going to trample it like pig, pigs would trample pearls. My coach, Mike Troy, who wasn't a Christian at the time, um, had a different saying. He said, you can't teach a pig to sing because it annoys the pig and it's a waste of your time. I couldn't find the scripture for that. so I... <laughs> You've heard eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah, that's Luke 12. 1 Corinthians 15, to fall by the wayside, just to be discarded. 
And that's Luke 8, the parable of the sower. Tyndale's translation in the first English-speaking Bible in 1526, in his version it says, the sower went out to sow his seeds, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. You fall by the wayside. Feet of clay, which means you're, you're, you're mortal, not immortal. That's out of Daniel chapter 2. I've got a few more. Fly in the ointment comes from Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, let's just do just two or three more. The land of milk and honey. That comes out of Exodus 3. A leopard can't change its spots. That's one we use. That's out of Jeremiah 13. Like a lamb, silent to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. It's in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It's a messianic passage that speaks of the Savior. This is one that we would do well to remember. A millstone tied around your neck. And the Bible says in Luke 17 that if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the deepest ocean. That they would be confused by being told there's over a hundred genders instead of two. That uh, their sexuality is fluid. That the answer to the transgender athletic problem of biological males competing in female sports by our own assemblywoman, she said, start giving them hormone treatments, hormone blocking treatments earlier. These are hormone-blocking treat, uh, treatments that we don't do to prisoners that are pedophiles and serial rapists because we say it's inhumane, but we'll do it to our children younger and younger for your social experiment upon our kids. Millstone tied around your neck. Not a good one to have. Yeah. To move mountains... Well, we all know what that means if you're a conservative in California. I was going to have to move that mountain. Let me just put my back into it. <laughs> it's out of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains or move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. You know how you move mountains? With love. Yeah. First John 4, 8 says, He who does not know love does not know God. For God is love. Very profound. Love doesn't mean that you tolerate sin. Love means you stand in opposition to it for the sake of the one who's trapped in it. Even if they ridicule you. Love is to stand for truth when truth is ridiculed and violently opposed and then when it becomes self-evident, you still stand with it. And finally, we'll do, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, I get a kick out of that. Nothing new under the sun, and it's out of Ecclesiastes as well. Solomon was pondering because he tried to find something new and exciting because he had more money than any man's ever had and power and wisdom, smartest man who ever lived, and he couldn't find anything new under the sun. And I crack up at that because I watch young people you know, walking around in what they think are the latest fashions. I'm like, I saw that 
in the 70s. They're called bell bottoms. And you're like, I know, aren't they just awesome? They just, no, they were stupid then and they're really weird now. You know, and you're like, if you have some on, they look great on you, but I, you know, then they, the, the, the pants get higher in some seasons and then they get lower, you know, and you're like, what is that? Am I supposed to put a quarter in that? <laughs> I'm just out of control. Stop me. Well, then we'll conclude with this one. The writing's on the wall. So it's, uh, That's out of Daniel when the, the hand appears not connected to anything to the Babylonian king and it scratches into the into the plaster, meeny, meeny, teka, farsal. You've been weighed in the balance that have been found wanting. It's just judgment. You, you, game over. The writing's on the wall. And I pray that that is not the case for the United States of America. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, with all my heart, don't believe that it is. Uh, Jeremiah 18 says that, that in the darkest seasons of the war, of independence. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who started the American Bible Society, father of public education, brilliant man, godly man, started the Abolition Society. Dr. Benjamin Rush leaned in and asked John Adams when they thought it was all over, he said, is there any chance of us winning? And John Adams replied, and this is in one of Benjamin Rush's letters, John Adams replied, Yes, if we fear God and repent. So some of us started well, we're finishing poorly, but it's still not over. Those pastors that I sat with have proven that. There was a season where I would say, ye Demas has forsaken me, look at those idiots. And now I'm like, you guys have blessed me. There's always hope for a Demas while your heart's still beating. Then he says, get Mark and bring him with you. It's evidence of restoration of trust in Mark from Paul. Paul had wanted nothing to do with Mark. His name is John Mark, his surname John. He goes by John Mark. It's out of Acts 15. He was related to Barnabas. Look at me before you read it. Barnabas was the guy that found Paul when nobody wanted to trust him because he'd been murdering Christians and he wanted to introduce him to the Christian community and no one believed it. It was Barnabas who put his reputation on the line to say, I stand with this guy. And they welcomed him in because of Barnabas. And Barnabas was related to John Mark and, and, and they traveled together. John Mark, Paul, and Barnabas. And Barnabas, son of encouragement, he loves people. Paul, for Paul, it's about the mission. For Barnabas, it's about the man. And, and here the passage says in verse 36 of Acts 15, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them. Everyone say determined. That's a good word, determined. Say it like that, determined. <laughs> yeah. You didn't do enough. I need jowls in this, Determined. Yeah, that's good. He was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted. I want to see spit on your neighbors. Insisted. 
But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. One was determined, the other insisted, and not a small contention arose. Two friends become separated. God still uses it to multiply the ministry. They still both love the Lord. One man is committed to the man, the other is committed to the mission. Who's right and who's wrong? I'm asking this question now as two of my friends are locked in a lawsuit with each other. I adore them both. Who's right and who's wrong? I think they're both right and I think they're both wrong. I think that's the case with them too, Barnabas and Paul. The beautiful thing about it is God works through it. When, when Paul says, do your utmost to come before winter, there was a lot of emotion behind it. Paul dearly wanted to see Timothy before he laid down his life for the Lord. We don't know if, if Paul ever saw Timothy again. Paul's imprisonment was in the Mamertine prison, a bleak building that still stands in Rome. It was built 100 years before Paul's imprisonment. It was a 100-year-old jail when he got into it. And he stayed in there, and it lasted until he was beheaded by Nero outside Rome's Ostian Gate at the place called Three Fountains. Michelle and I have been there. The building on the exterior is nice, but the interior is vile. This is where they kept him. It's more like what it looks like, a hole in the ceiling, and you just sat in your own excrement. And Paul was martyred in the aftermath of the great fires that swept Rome, which Nero in some manner tried to blame on Christians. According to some traditions, he was beheaded on the same day as Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was a Roman citizen, couldn't be legally crucified. Nero sets fire to Rome. And what he did in retaliation is he took Christians, wrapped them in kindling, and lit the streets of Rome with their burning bodies. And Paul gets beheaded. Peter's crucified upside down. Peter was crucified upside down in front of his wife. We don't know that he ever made it to Rome, but my Catholic brothers and sisters believe it to be so. This martyrdom is typical of Roman crucifixion. And but Paul, in the last stages of his life, calls out for Mark. He says, bring Mark with you, which I think is so precious. Get Mark and bring him with you. He's useful for me in the ministry. It's kind of like a Demas made good. And all of us are a work in progress. But I'll tell you something that hurts. And I want to talk to the Pauls out there who are all about the mission, not the man. And I've been a Paul and I've been a Barnabas. And I know how to do both. And an unguarded strength is a weakness. And I'll never forget one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. It almost derailed me from ministry. 
And I felt so low, I had to look up to see down. My wife and I were having dinner with a missionary couple in Fresno. There was a knock at the door. It was the pastor of the church. I'd worked at an Armenian church for five, four years, and we'd gone through five ministers, I think. He was a professor of Old Testament theology, and he was teacher of the year at the university that he was taking a sabbatical from so he could pastor the church, and he was the only pastor of the five that believed in the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ. I was thrilled that he had come because we were both basically missionaries in this church, and we weren't Armenians. They gave us a really endearing title called Odar, which means other. <laughs> and, and this man looked like Charlton Heston, and he was one of the most brilliant theologians and expositors of Scripture I've ever heard. He had a way of looking at things that nobody could, un, could, could even remotely see, and he would articulate it, and you would just be so blown away by it. I, I learned so much from him listening to his teachings. But he had an anger problem. He was used to being a teacher and revered. And I was just a lowly youth director in an Armenian church as an Odar. I didn't know how to do an outline. I'd never taken any courses. I didn't know anything he was talking about. He was so frustrated with me. And as we're having dinner with this missionary couple, there's a knock at the door. I answer it, and it's him. He says, can you come out, please? I go, yeah, sure. I close the door. What's up, pastor? And I look over, and I should have known. His wife is in the car, and she's got her hand on her head like, oh, God, and he's doing it again. He had a terrible anger problem, and she, she was shrinking like a, a daisy in the sunlight without water. And he begins to yell at me. You don't love people. You don't love the ministry. You're pathetic. <laughs> and he's cussing and spitting and pointing his finger in my chest. He goes, you, just, you should just quit. You have no business doing this. And if you tell anyone what happened here, that'll prove your character. And he walked away. It's kind of like, I beat you up. Don't tell anybody. I turn around. I walk in. I turn to Michelle. She goes, how'd it go? I go, Fine. <clears throat> And we, we prepared to leave quietly, and we did. I thought it was over. I know how John Mark felt when Paul said he's worthless. Because I felt worthless. But thank God, Paul isn't God. And neither was this man. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. And John Mark stayed true to the end. It was strengthened. I'm hopeful for Demas. Paul died a tragic and painful death. Peter as well. To die for a good man, few often do. We honor our dead in America. This is a case on in Arlington. My mother-in-law's father, my wife's grandfather, was given this honor as he was buried at Arlington, having sunk the Nagato, the command ship of the attack on Pearl Harbor, given the Navy Cross, second only in the Medal of Honor. He died while on active duty. As you invoke those who died, 
defending our inalienable rights given to us by God. These young men and women who would never marry, have children, experience old age, have secured these gifts of liberty. And we honor them row upon row. And that brings us to the conclusion of Paul's life and our message. Paul wrote the book of Romans. And he said the secret to endure and to lose everything and have your life finished with a sword through your neck and pen those final words to Timothy while greeting all he loved while he watched his friend Peter crucified upside down. Never to renounce Christ, but to become stronger, anti-fragile. The more they mock you, the stronger you become. What is the secret? It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Paul would write about it. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die as they have at Arlington. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. You go, I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. Sinner just means bullseye arrow. It's an archer's term. How far the arrow's fallen from perfection. Please. I mean, if you've obtained perfection, will you enlighten us? Just stand and tell us now. Can't we all agree we've missed the mark? Do you want me to show what you think and do in secret? Thank you. I don't. He put me here because I'm like the Paul, Paul would write in his epistle. I'm the chief of sinners. I have gotten a doctorate. I thought you'd laugh. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified. Please say justified. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Enemies have been reconciled. Sinners are reconnected. The word religion is Latin, relungari, to reconnect with your creator. Sin separates you. God covers that sin with his blood, pays the penalty, and you're reconciled to the Father. This is the final part, but the free gift. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, Adam... Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, which means we're all condemned. We're not getting off this blue marble, broken blue marble on our own merits. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. I had you say justification. You see, I can't die for you. I'm a sinner. You can't die for me. You're a sinner. And the 
The penalty for sin is death. We're all on death row. But Christ left heaven to become a man, conceived in the womb of Mary. He wasn't a blob of tissue. He was a human being. He leapt in the womb of his mother when his cousin came by, Jonathan, in the womb of Elizabeth, his mother. Those babies in utero, the unborn, that this is now a destination of destruction for them, not in this room. We value human life as God does because he's created it. And with that human being who was born was tempted in all ways yet was without sin when he bled and died on the cross. His final words, seven of seven phrases, but just a few to remember as we take communion together. He said, to telestai. It just means it's finished, it's paid for. I, I paid the penalty. Though your sins are as scarlet, you've been washed as white as snow, you're forgiven. And what's so beautiful about that is the last passage says, but the free gift came from many offenses, resulted in justification. I'm still sinning. But justification means that his body was broken, his blood was shed for the remission of my sins, past, present, and future. My righteousness is imputed to me. It's put on my account. It's his, not mine. When the father looks at me, he doesn't see my mess. He sees his son's blood. And he says, case closed, he's forgiven. Though your sins are scarlet, you'll be washed as white as snow by the blood of the lamb. And it's a gift. But a gift must be received. It's a grace gift. It must be received. And if you want to try to sing the theme song of hell, deny the Lord and say, I did it my way, good luck with that. And by the way, luck is a four-letter word that ends in U-C-K. A sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without God's full knowledge. You didn't end up here by chance. Chance doesn't keep your heart beating and your lungs moving. The God who loved you before you were born and knitted you together in your mother's womb, who ordained you to be a prophet to the nations, is here right now wanting to forgive you and cleanse you and make you a new creature in Christ. You may be a Demas. You may be a John Mark. But God is ready to give you a new lease on life. So that you, like Paul would write, can forget what's behind and strive for what is ahead and take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Let's invite the worship team up. We're going to do it together, this communion. Now, the, what you're going to do with these hermetically sealed, we're going to go with the bread first. So you take the lid off and you take this huge piece of bread. We don't want you guys getting too full. There's nothing magical in this. It comes from... Unleavened, which it's the longest running family meal in world history. It's called the Passover on the night that Jesus was betrayed. This meal celebrates from slavery to freedom. And Christ holds it up. He, it, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is truth. And he held it up and he said, as often as you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. My body broken for you. He walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain. He was, he was whipped like Paul was whipped. He was beaten by the Romans. He was pierced for our transgressions, the crown of thorns upon his head. His body was ripped open so that the blood could be shed. And he did it for one reason. He loves you. He loves you. And you know how much he loves you? This much. 
His body, his cross, is a giant battleship blocking the gates of hell so you don't have to go there. And to get there, you're going to have to step over it. But he says, come to me. All you are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Is it so hard to say that you're not perfect and you failed to a God who wants to reconcile you to himself? Pride cometh before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction, just ask Demas. But today is a day for John Marks and for the Demases to come. Let's take this together, all of us. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken. We take it corporately, but we recognize it individually. For this is a meal that unifies us as a family, but saves us as individuals. I thank you for each and every person who's trusted their life to you. You are a good God. You're a magnificent Savior. And you're a wonderful Father. And we love you, Lord. Last part, take that lid off. Don't spill it on your neighbor. We're not going to say determine or insist it. I'm kidding. Some of you are going, this is a little more serious. Why are you cooking? I can't help it. The Lord, Lord made me. But God knows how I feel about this. Without this, my life is a waste of time. Everything good in Rob McCoy's life is a result of the blood he shed for me. Anything good you see in me and the joy that I experience is because of what he's done for me. You're discouraged. It's just because you haven't spent time with the one who will give you courage. He's true. He's true, and it's only him who can cleanse you. It was his blood out of love that was poured out to reconcile you to the Father. And the greatest of these is love. Lord, we thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you for the cup of the new covenant, your blood poured out for the remission of our sins. And we do this in honor of you, for we love you. And may we love your word, for you are the word. You are true. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are the family of God. We have just enjoyed a meal together. And I'm honored to be part of that with all of you. You are the most precious congregation on the face of the earth. Michelle and I pinch ourselves. We can't believe we get to be with you.